Hello and welcome to the audio podcast of All of the Above, episode 4. Before we hit you with the episode, we just want to fill you in on a few things. First of all, I'm Manuel Rustin, aka your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And of course, you know the video version of each episode is available on our website at aotashow.com. We have the audio-only podcast for you commuters, but if you want the full experience, including the dope graphics and of course our two beautiful faces, then check us out online. Now, the show is still a work in progress, and so you might notice some audio irregularities in this episode, so bear with us. Our budget of exactly $0 doesn't yet include a line item for an audio engineer, but we're doing our best. Also, at the end of this episode, we've attached some extras to the podcast version. These are one-on-one interviews with each of our three seminar guests, so those will play right when the episode concludes. All right, so thank you for tuning in, and with that, let's start the show. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another episode of All of the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And if you're catching this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe. If you're watching us on Facebook, please remember to like our page and share this with your friends. And if you're listening to the audio-only podcast, thank you for tuning in. But do know I am wearing a lovely powder blue tie That was a gift from my in-laws, and it's very special to me. And you're missing out on that, but thank you for tuning in. All right, now we are excited to have you back, and we've got another great episode for you today featuring three very special guests. One, a middle school teacher in South Los Angeles who's using technology to accelerate learning in her classroom. One, a professional in the tech industry who helps schools access new tools for learning. And the third, a professor who specializes in critical media literacy. With their expertise, we'll be exploring questions about the use of technology in the classroom. What role should technology play in learning? Is the influx of devices into the classroom transforming learning? And how do we teach students to responsibly navigate learning and living in an online world? But first, we dive into some headlines in education in a segment we call The Warm Up. In recent years, many of the nation's largest school districts have seen massive drops in suspension rates for students. This is great news. But is school discipline reform going too fast? This is the question explored in a recent piece in The Atlantic. Following years of advocacy from community groups, from parents, educators, and guidance issued by the Obama administration back in 2014, Many districts began tackling the thorny issues of huge suspension rates and massively disproportionate rates for black and brown students. As a result, many schools and districts have taken on restorative justice practices in an effort to create healthier school cultures and an environment that helps students who've committed a violation restore their place in the school community. And it would seem to be working. Los Angeles has seen suspension rates fall from 9% to 1% over the last decade. New York City, the nation's largest district, saw a 46% decline in just five years of changed policies. But many teachers and advocacy groups say that improving numbers hide the real truth. In most districts, training for teachers in restorative practices has been limited, and the staff and resources provided to schools to implement the policies are typically inadequate at best. 
Some teacher groups are even claiming that these policies are the main driver for teacher turnover in districts who have adopted them. Manuel, as a teacher, what's your take? Is the move towards restorative justice practices a good thing, or is this really just moving numbers around and hiding the truth? Well, uh, in general, I think it's a good thing um, by far, but I have heard it said that restorative justice practices presume that there was justice there to begin with. And we know that a lot of discipline uh, challenges are rooted in some of the trauma and some of the struggle that students are bringing to the classroom from their lived experience um, outside of school. So these practices are a good step towards trying to deal with discipline in such a way that students are kept in school and embraced and supported and, and helped through their challenges. But there is also something to be said about the decline in suspension rates and um, how much to really um, buy into that because discipline rates, sus suspension rates, like graduation rates, it's pretty easy to cook those books and schools do it. And um, the argument that some teachers are being maybe pushed out of the classroom or deciding to leave the classroom because they're so frustrated with discipline procedures at their school site, I don't buy that. I, there might be some teachers that are frustrated, but I would argue that most of those teachers probably are frustrated with uh, so-called classroom management in general. And, um, you know, restorative justice practices, I don't think uh, should be blamed for any of that. But, you know, I do think it's the right direction to go. We're not there yet. It's not perfect, but we're making some progress. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Well-intentioned policies that should continue. Uh, I think the operative uh, meaning we have to pull out of it is that restorative justice mm -hmm. uh, and restorative practices are about restoring something that needed to already exist. Right. We have to have a healthy culture in order to restore a healthy culture. I think sometimes the policies miss that step and don't mm. put in place resources and uh, the things that schools need to really create and build healthy cultures, especially for some of our kids who are getting into trouble the most. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right, so now for our next story. Um, in an article in The Atlantic, Clint Smith III, known as Clint Smith III on Twitter, he explores the largely overlooked impact that the new tax plan may have on public schools. Under the Republican plan passed through Congress last December, families are now allowed to use 529 college savings plans, also known as qualified tuition plans, to pay for private K-12 schooling. This allows families to withdraw up to $10,000 annually per child from these tax-free accounts and use that to pay for private schooling. Smith argues that this new deduction creates an incentive for parents to take their children out of public schools and put them in private ones. Prior to the new Republican plan, funds from qualified tuition plans couldn't be used for private school tuition. Of course, an incentive for families to send their children to private schools means that public schools will not only lose some students, but they'll also lose some money since they rely on enrollment numbers to qualify for much of their funding. That means less money for public schools and more money for private schools. This change in 529 college savings plans, combined with the new $10,000 cap and deductions for state and local taxes that public schools rely on the most for their funding, means that the tax law would, over the next 10 years, blow a $150 billion hole in state and local revenue earmarked for K-12 schools. Jeff, why aren't more folks talking about this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the, the actual truth is because people don't like to get into the weeds around policy and in the weeds is actually where most of the most important stuff actually is. Right. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, 529 plans, 
um, in theory, were, were really good policy to help people save for college and to incentivize um, that sort of saving. The fact that this is being morphed into a tax-free way for rich folks to pay for fancy prep schools is uh, just frankly unacceptable and an embarrassment in a society where um, the rich already have too much and right. the rest of us are struggling to find resources to pay for what's basically needed at our public schools. Um, at the end of the day, um, this is just one of many, many pieces inside of the new tax policy and inside of um, the, uh, the Trump administration that are uh, doing harm to our schools directly and indirectly. Absolutely. And you mentioned in our previous episode um, some of the other aspects of the tax plan that bear um, a brunt of, of challenge towards public school funding. And, um, you know, this is something that for sure, as we get to know more and more about this ta tax plan and how things roll out, uh, public schools and those interested in the health and welfare and well-being of our public school system, um, you know, this is something that folks are going to have to continue to look into and decide what they want to do about it. Yeah. Yep. Next up, we turn to a story about assessment. Uh, the Learning Policy Institute released a new report in January examining the case for using performance assessment as the key measure of college readiness in place of the more traditional metrics like SAT or the ACT. Now, for you non-educators out there, performance assessment is when a student is asked to complete a task and then that task is scored on some sort of a rubric. The report outlines examples of high leverage practices already in place in some states and districts around the country. Unlike traditional assessments that critics have long argued are culturally biased or that favor certain types of learners, namely those who excel in high stakes single shot assessments, performance assessments can offer a more holistic picture of a student's abilities. And from an equity standpoint, Proponents of the use of performance assessments argue that they give a more accurate measure of students' abilities across racial groups and across socioeconomic status. Quote, if organized in an easily reviewable form, the report notes, results from rigorous, validated, high-quality performance assessments could be used for college admissions as well as for placement uh, and for advising decisions as well as for potential post-secondary assessments of likely success. So, Manuel, should this spell the end of the SAT and the ACT, or is this performance assessment talk just, uh, uh, you know, just a fad? Well, anything related to education today is at risk of being a fad, because there are, have been many, many fads in education, and performance assessments could be a fad, but I don't think they are just a fad. Uh, first of all, performance assessments are, are dope. I love them. Um, they definitely give us uh, classroom educators um, a lot more to work with in terms of assessing uh, a student's um, comprehension of um, our learning targets. However, they're not easy to pull off, especially nationally in place of something like the SAT. The SAT isn't going anywhere. There have been challenges to the SAT over the years and College Board has seemed to respond to each challenge with some sort of uh, modification of the SAT or something. Like there, that income is not gonna go anywhere. We will continue to struggle with trying to assess college readiness. I think performance assessments will help us get closer, but even those will be difficult to model um, closely enough to actual lived college experience to give us a real indicator of how ready a student is for college. So I think that'll be an ongoing struggle, but this isn't just a fad. 
Yeah, I, I think I definitely agree. Uh, performance assessments undoubtedly give us a more holistic picture of students and what they can and cannot do. Uh, I think that's pretty indisputable. But at the end of the day, it's logistically extremely difficult to think about um, fully replacing something like the SAT with, with uh, you know, a rigorous uh, research paper, um, for example. Um, that said, it's interesting to note that a number of the nation's most competitive colleges have been progressively de-emphasizing the importance of true. the SAT or the ACT in their admission criteria oh, over the years. So maybe there's some push on both sides of this from educators K-12 who uh, would like to see some other measures and maybe right. some colleges kind of pushing downward on the system and, and thinking the same thing. Oh yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now the SAT looks a lot more like a performance assessment than it does now. And I think when we took the SAT years ago, um, that version of SAT looked quite a bit different than this modern version. And, yeah. you know, like I said, that's that's a big moneymaker. College Board could rest easy tonight. Um, it will always be a part of our national education uh, discussion one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, next up, we move into a segment we like to call the show and tell. Jeff, what have you brought to show us today? All right. Well, for today's show and tell, I brought in this book. It's a copy of Lerone Bennett Jr.'s Before the Mayflower. I brought this in to share because it was one of the core texts of the African-American history class I took in high school. And it is a cornerstone of my historical and political awakening as a young man. This text, given to me in the 10th grade by a public school teacher, shout out to Mr. Mead from St. Paul Central High School, helped me understand and grapple with the history of our nation openly and honestly. Americans, unfortunately, are shockingly uninformed about our own history. We see funny episodes on talk shows where people don't know who the vice president is and where people don't know when the War of 1812 happened. And let's be real, those are funny. But what we are seeing today in our national discourse and in our federal government is an erasure of aspects of our history and a refusal to accept some of the hard, important truths of our American past. This is a nation founded on the genocide of native peoples. This is a nation whose wealth was derived from more than two centuries of slavery and another century of legalized racial terror after that. This is a nation that stole massive amounts of territory from Mexico to stretch from sea to shining sea. This is a nation that has interfered in democratic elections in dozens of countries around the world and frankly continues to do so today. This is a nation that knew about the Holocaust but refused to enter the war until Japan attacked our military colony in the Pacific, which we later claimed as the state of Hawaii. This is a nation whose great middle class was built with the largest and most successful social programs in our history, including the GI Bill, the FHA, and Social Security, but who denied those benefits to blacks systematically. This is a country that still today does not allow its people to directly elect the president. This is a country that actively suppresses voter turnout in its elections. This is a country that has not yet allowed women to vote for even half of its existence. And this is a country where progress on any of these issues has been resisted violently by law enforcement, by elected officials, and by the majority population. 
Now, I say this not to depress anyone or to simply bash America. I say this because we have failed as a society to teach our full history. We have succeeded in teaching about the great ideas of democracy and freedom in some of our founding documents. We have succeeded in teaching about our progress towards fairness and equality. We have even succeeded in teaching about the power of our military and our economic strength. But in that success, we have also succeeded in denying ourselves a full understanding of who we are, of why our society looks the way it does today. By hiding from the fullness of our past, we deny ourselves a true understanding of who we are. As a former social studies teacher, I am sad to say that schools have, to a large extent, much of the blame to bear in perpetuating this problem, particularly our schools in suburban and rural areas. How is it that in 2017, we have a growing number of people joining white nationalist terror groups? How do we have such a large percentage of the population that is so woefully uninformed about basic functions of government to the point that they proclaim things like, keep your government hands off my Medicare? How do we have conservatives using the language of the civil rights movement to berate people of color who are standing up for their rights as pandering to so-called identity politics and being the true racists in our society? While there is enough blame to go around, we cannot escape the idea that our system of public schooling has failed to provide a responsible education to many of our fellow citizens. The great Martin Luther King Jr. once said that the function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. Well, it is clear that we are not doing a good enough job of teaching either intelligence or character. As we live through an era of regression towards a mythologized past when America was supposedly great, where alternative facts are proudly proclaimed as truth, and where hatred and bigotry are proud features of our political discourse, the importance of a strong, functioning system of public education has never been more clear. The way forward for us perhaps begins with doing a much better job of looking backwards with honesty and courage to confront what's there. That's why I brought in this book and that's my show and tell for today. Well, when I sat here on the show a few episodes back and said that teachers need to defend all of their students regardless of their immigration status, I got called libtard, pencil neck, and you know, I know I'm pretty skinny, but pencil neck, that's pretty harsh. Don't forget snowflake. Snowflake for sure, and a bunch of other things. So I am actually eager to see what folks will have to say about that show and tell. You spoke some very powerful truths there. <laughs> um, I wholeheartedly agree as a social science teacher that um, we need to not just focus on the promise and greatness of America, but also explore some of the uh, very dark truths that help get us here. Um, but I don't think that everyone agrees. 
Yeah, I know for a fact that not everyone agrees, and uh, that's why I brought in this book. But why I'm don't gonna... you love America, though? <laughs> like, if you I'm... don't love it, you could just move. This is available at the Pasadena City Library. I'll be returning it this evening, and uh, you can find it there on the shelf. Uh, Before the Mayflower from the late, great Lerone Bennett Jr. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Passed away on February 14th. Um, yeah, I think we have to do a better job of really teaching the realness, the truth of our history. Only by understanding where we have come from can we really understand who we are and where we're going next. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that show and tell. And up next, we have a seminar segment looking at technology in the classroom. When you mention the word school to most adults over the age of 30 today, a certain image comes to mind. A classroom with students seated in desks, perhaps in rows facing forward, holding a writing instrument of some kind, notebooks open, listening to the teacher, perhaps copying down notes. And while there are elements of that image that remain true, the pace of technological change hitting many American classrooms today might surprise you. In many classrooms across the country, it would not be surprising to see students cracking open a laptop or a Chromebook more often than they crack open a notebook or hold a pen. Students regularly conduct online research from their seat, scouring the seemingly unlimited volumes of data online that dwarf the libraries of our youth. Over the last decade, American schools have invested tens of billions of dollars in technology upgrades. From high-speed internet infrastructure to acquisition of devices to securing software and licenses for digital content, the race to take advantage of a rapidly developing education technology sector has been swift. It is estimated that public schools in America now provide a computer for one in five students, and that number is steadily progressing towards a one-to-one -one ratio. Schools spend nearly $8 billion annually on hardware and software, including investments like laptop computers, tablets, maintenance on devices, and core software like Microsoft Office, testing and grading programs. Schools also spend $3 billion per year on so-called digital content for things like eBooks and blended learning software that supports personalized instruction. This rapid growth of technology in the classroom has brought with it a swift evolution, for early adopters at least, of what learning looks like in school. Technology brings with it the power to do things with students not previously possible. For example, Software can now assess a student's reading skills and give them a text at their specific reading level. As the student grows, they can receive progressively more challenging texts to push their learning as soon as they're ready for a new challenge. Students who are ready to work ahead of the pace of their peers no longer need to sit and doodle. They can access content prepared by the teacher at their own pace through online learning management systems. Computers, tablets, and even phones facilitate students having access to the vast banks of human knowledge available online for research on any topic imaginable. And in more recent years, students can easily become producers of media with affordable or even freely available software accessible on your average laptop or iPad. And while the impact of this tectonic shift in both the availability and sophistication of technology in classrooms has been significant, there remain many questions and even concerns about the influx of technology in schools. There is a growing body of research showing the connection between screen time and the rising rates of social isolation, depression, ADHD, and other negative mental health outcomes for children. 
Some teachers and college faculty complain that technology causes students to be distracted and is undermining students' ability to focus on learning. Parents and educators alike have struggled to effectively guide young people in navigating a seemingly unregulated online world where everything from hate speech to pornography can be accessed, even unintentionally, at the click of a button. And that's before we even begin to think about the dollars and cents of it all. EdTech is considered by venture capitalists to be a lucrative growth market, with major corporations in the testing industrial complex setting explicit goals to get their products into the hands of every student in America and every school budget along with them. So with all of that in mind, what should the role of technology be in education? Are we just at the precipice of a great technologically advanced future for school? Or are we at the ledge of a dangerous point of no return? To explore these important questions about teaching and learning in the age of technology, we are joined by three special guests today who bring a range of expertise to the table. Furthest from my left is Evelyn Ennis. Welcome, Evelyn. Uh, Evelyn is a sixth grade teacher at George Washington Carver Middle School in South Los Angeles. Uh, she teaches math and science um, and is a department chair. She also uh, is currently implementing the new uh, Next Generation Science Standards with uh, Amplify, uh, using iPads in her classroom, and also is teaching math uh, with the iReady program as well. Um, next to Evelyn, we have uh, Jeff Scher. Jeff is um, a faculty advisor in the teacher education program at UCLA. Uh, Jeff's work specializes in critical media literacy, helping to uh, assess and understand issues of racism and sexism through media. Um, Jeff also has a background as an elementary school teacher here in Los Angeles. Um, and to my immediate right is Santosh Balasubramanian. Uh, Santosh is a technologist uh, who specializes in applications and their, um, their applicability to education and to health. He is um, formerly, was formerly, um, a product manager for Khan Academy and for Google as well. Um, and is currently supporting John Muir High School here um, where we are filming. So welcome uh, all, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so to kick us off, I kind of want to revisit the question uh, we, we began uh, the segment with, which is uh, we've had this swift evolution um, in education and a massive influx of technology. Um, and is this a good thing? Is this a dangerous thing? Um, you know, are we on the edge of greatness or are we uh, on the edge of peril? Um, what do you think? And maybe we'll start with, with Evelyn. Well, I have a classroom with 36 kids in it. Um, when I think of teaching all of my kids, I think technology is an amazing thing because I have students that are as low as second grade that can go as high as seventh grade. And when I think of all of the different levels I have, technology definitely helps me um, get all my kids to where they need to be. And what about uh, Jeff and Santosh? What do you think? I agree. I think there's a lot of potential that um, technology offers. And your example, I think, is, is a wonderful um, example of that. I think we do need to be careful where these tools are things that the students are using as opposed to the students being used by the tools. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about, uh, about what you mean by that, Jeff? Well, there are a lot of programs that have the students just do what the program allows them to do. And so the range of choices are not great. And it's not really 
teaching the kids how to be the creators and the um, controllers of the information. It's teaching them more how to be the consumers of it. And I think we need to be very careful that these tools don't turn education into more of this kind of banking model where kids are just being um, standardized into just kind of better uh, robots. And, and we have the possibility, I mean, these new tools, even cell phones, have the ability to, to film, to record, to go out and create uh, investigations, to share information, to do so much more that our students should be empowered to do that with the technology rather than just kind of getting better at test taking. Whenever I think about this question, I try to step away from the sort of the abstract word technology and get more concrete. I think the problem with talking about, you know, is technology useful in the classroom in general is that one, uh, it sort of makes it harder to talk about sort of the reality of what students and teachers are doing on a day-to-day -day basis, um, just because it's so abstract. And two, I think it uh, causes us to think that technology is potentially newer in the classroom than it maybe is. You know, for decades we've had you know, graphing calculators, we've had overhead projectors, uh, many teachers have their own personal computer that they use to facilitate grading and lesson planning and other things. Uh, so I think it really depends on sort of the specifics of the activity or the tool that you're using. And like Jeff was mentioning, like some tools can be used well or they can be used poorly and it all sort of depends on the specifics of how the teacher and the student are deciding to take advantage of the technology. So in the classic American old school view of classrooms, we're picturing students and desks crack, cracking open a textbook, writing down notes, listening to the teacher talk. What has been the largest impact that technology, digital technology nowadays has had on that classic model of sitting down and writing down notes and listening to the teacher and reading a textbook? I think it's the novelty. Um, a lot of the kids, they're just um, so into it because this is technology they're using. It, it doesn't matter if I have them type up a paper as long as it's on an iPad, you know, they're a lot more engaged than if I were to ask them to take out a sheet of paper with a pen. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential um, once you bring in the technology because like, like Evelyn said, it can be much more engaging and motivating for the students, um, but it, it is often also being used as just another way of taking tests. And I think one of the big reasons it was funded so much in LAUSD was because the, the new standardized testing programs needed to be done on an iPad, and, and so that's where the money came from. And too often that money is just for the hardware, it's not for the training of the teachers and helping them think about creative ways they can use the technology. I think in teachers that I've spoken with, one of the greatest sort of advantages of having the, the uh, technology in the classroom is just giving them an opportunity to sort of reevaluate. Uh, so, uh, lots of teachers have sort of built up practices that have worked over time, and you know the introduction of some new element in the, into the classroom, whether it's iPads or Chromebooks, uh, or or just like a, a new piece of educational software, allows them to reevaluate sort of what's working, what's not working, where can I maybe just save time for myself as a teacher to focus more time elsewhere, you know, where can I give students the opportunity to maybe take more control of, of their own learning and, and drive more of that themselves. So I think the, the real advantage is just sort of the, the sorts of questions that we're encouraging people to, to ask uh, as part of technology's increasing rollout in classrooms. 
Yeah, I think as I as I hear you talk, um, you know, it really makes me think about the the things that technology allows a teacher to do that are sort of mechanically not possible without computing involved, right? Um, to be able to personalize experience for students, to be able to enable students to produce, uh, you know, digital content are things that would have taken, you know, gigantic budgets or uh, huge amounts of time to do in the past. Uh, that now can be done, you know, uh, multiple times in a single class period. Um, Jeff, I know you uh, specialize in uh, supporting teachers um, with kind of um, using and producing media in the classroom. I wonder if, if maybe you can speak a little bit from a, a teacher education standpoint about what you've seen uh, the impact of technology in the classroom be on kind of training the new generation of teachers. I think there's tremendous potential um, that these new tools really can do so much, but we really fall short in our training. And what we're seeing is kind of the same thing that happened years ago when Apple put one computer in every classroom. A lot of the, t the tools are not being used, or if they're being used, they're not being used well. We really need to do more about training teachers and helping them think outside the box of how can we change education. Because a lot of people look at technology as this panacea that's just gonna make it all, you know, everything better, solve all their problems. And really what's tending to happen is that the technology is being used as just a newer, better instrument to do the same thing that we've been doing for years and years that hasn't been working. So I think we really need to think differently and more critically about these tools, because especially now as the technology becomes so common in society where every, just about every child walks into the classroom with a cell phone already in their pocket, which is this incredible computer. They have more skills in terms of how to use it, but not how to think about it and how to, to really use these tools to improve society and to you know, create the notion of democracy that you know, John Dewey talked about education for years. That's what it should be the goal and not simply, you know, um, raising test scores. Mm. Evelyn, I'm wondering if maybe you can speak to that as a, as a practitioner and as someone who maybe grapples with the, the realities of you know, all the pressures around um, yeah. you know, <laughs> academic outcomes for kids that are, that are real, um, but also the, you know, the passion and the desire to have great learning experiences for kids. What role has the kind of introduction of, of um, iPads and a blended learning software had in, in your classroom? Well, right now, I've been teaching my students to be aware of the areas that they have gaps in. And so with them being aware of their gaps, they're able to come to me and say, hey, Ms. Ennis, like, I'm using this program right now. I need you to program these set of lessons on there because I know I'm really lacking in these standards. And so for me, it helps me kind of, um, while I'm moving forward, give, giving them the tools to kind of fill in the gaps because Unfortunately, I can't keep going back. I, my goal is to con continue to push them forward. So with technology, as in um, iReady or MobyMax or whatever program I'm using at the time, I'm able to just say, okay, let me crack open my laptop, let me assign this lesson to this student, and they're able to accomplish those goals, something I was not able to do without the use of technology. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, Santosh, from, from your perspective, as someone who uh, has been a part of the process of building, creating, and, and rolling out Khan Academy, which is you know, certainly one of the, uh, the, the more widely used um, uh, blended learning platforms in America today, um, 
what have you seen uh, in terms of uh, you know maybe changes in impact to the way that students are engaging with content and or teachers are are using tools that are available? Yeah, so so I guess the the sort of thing that I always keep in the back of my head when I'm thinking about sort of like how to how to improve a piece of educational technology is in, in, in the 80s. Uh, Benjamin Bloom, who's famous for Bloom's taxonomy, did sort of a, a meta-analysis of a bunch of different interventions that you could do in the classroom. So looking at homework, looking at you know sort of warm-ups at the beginning of a lesson, looking at one-on-one tutoring, uh, looking at all sorts of different uh, different ways of structuring the curriculum. And uh, what he found was that uh, b- far and away the most powerful intervention that you could do is just having one-to-one tutorial instruction. Uh, which kind of makes sense. If you have a, like a student who's able to work one-on-one with a teacher, you're going to be able to achieve things that you wouldn't be able to uh, in a large classroom. But obviously, just pragmatically, it's just not that's not feasible. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and so the the way that I think about technology is sort of like how can we like allow teachers to bring their classroom maybe like 10% closer to that ideal mm-hmm. of one-on-one instruction. Um, and so with that in mind, I think. That sort of helps me conceptualize it, but uh, I think sort of as you think about teacher training and uh, helping teachers use these tools more effectively, it's important to have the conversation sort of at the right level of abstraction, right? Like if you talk purely in sort of the abstract pedagogy, that's not really helpful to most teachers as they're thinking about day-to-day lesson planning. And similarly, like in lots of, you know, trainings that happen with educational software, the focus will be on, you know, if you click these five buttons in this app, you get magic with your students or something like that. Mm. And I think that's too low level. The pedagogy is often too high level. And so I think as you're talking to teachers and students about how to use these tools effectively, you need to kind of like strike that middle ground um, and help people use both the general principles and the concrete specifics of how do I actually use this tool. Yeah. So what are the long-term implications of districts moving more and more towards technology in the classroom and towards a one-to-one ratio between students and Chromebooks or tablets or any other technology in a profession where funding has long been a challenge and time has long been a challenge in terms of the time teachers need to adequately um, plan and and assess students' learning and all that. So what are the long-term implications of this move towards technology in the classroom? I think there's a lot of wonderful potential, but we also have to really keep our eyes open because it's, there's also a lot of potential for corporations and business, the business world to kind of move in and co-opt this because it's very easy for them once we start to think that it's all about the tools. Well, then they can create the tools, they can sell the tools, and they can take over public education. Yeah, I, I guess when I think about sort of how to deal with this problem of, you know, limited time and, and limited limited money. I think w- one of the, the biggest areas where I think there has been a lot of a lot of improvement, but I think where we can still uh, focus more of our collective energy is on just finding ways to save both students and teachers time. Um, so that like if you can sort of streamline some of the sort of like the uh, the more painful like day-to-day logistics, uh, you can free up time to think at sort of the higher levels of abstraction about how you want to design your curriculum and de- design your classroom. Um, and so I think there's still a lot that can be done in just focusing on using technology as purely a way to save time rather than focusing on like 
learning outcomes necessarily. You can focus on saving people time as a, as a, as a proxy for allowing them to save, to spend more of their energy on you know, learning outcomes. Well, and I've seen that um, just buying technology and putting them into the classrooms doesn't really help. Uh, a lot of teachers, a lot of administrators need to be educated on how to use it, what programs they're going to use with it. And um, that has proven to be really difficult for a lot of teachers, um, especially, you know, part of the older generation as well. They're just kind of like, well, I've been doing this for years. Why do I have to use, you know, a laptop? Why do my students need to type? Why do they have to research? And so it's been really hard kind of pushing the thinking behind, well, beyond what they've already been using in the classroom. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up that uh, that point. I think there's the there's sort of the digital divide historically that's been talked about, right? The gap between the kind of haves and have-nots when it comes to devices. Uh, parallel to that, I think there's also the cultural shift uh, as professionals, right? That um, these are new tools, a new way of kind of being as an educator. And, um, and like any culture shift, there are those who are excited and early adopters, and there are those who feel you know, um, infringed upon or potentially even violated in some way. And so uh, you know, as, through your lens as a teacher, Evelyn, what have you, what have you seen and, and what maybe lessons might you be able to share with us about uh, kind of how to successfully navigate the culture change that comes along with introducing more and more technology in the classroom? Well, personally for me, it's, I've always found it a lot easier, especially since as soon as I finished with my credentialing program, I went straight into my master's, technology-based education. <laughs> and so when I got into education, I just thought it was the norm. I thought everyone used it. And then when I started piloting programs and going to my peers and saying, hey, let's use this, I didn't realize I was going to be pushed back upon. <laughs> and um, then it kind of became more research-based. It, it had to become more research-based. And it had to be me bringing my dad and say, hey, look, this is where my kids were. This is now where they are. And kind of leaving it on the table for those to choose. And unfortunately, at one point, they didn't have the choice anymore because it was kind of like from the top down saying, you guys have to use this program, you know, get the kids on it but then they didn't know how to get the kids on it and they didn't know the best practices on what to do once the kids were on it. So it, it became really difficult as a whole. Hmm. So just to be clear for maybe some of our um, non-educator audience members, I think you're describing uh, sharing data of student achievement results Absolutely. using some of the blended learning uh, um, platforms that you're using and sort of letting the data speak for for why using these tools might be compelling for Absolutely. folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Jeff, I, I'd like to turn to you for a moment. Um, I spoke a second ago about the, the sort of digital divide and the haves and have nots. We've, we've taken many steps forward. We're not there yet uh, in terms of closing that gap, but something that um, you uh, mentioned to me in a, in a recent conversation was the kind of shift to a participation divide. And the idea that uh, some uh, that there's a growing gap between those uh, in education who are using equipment to create content and share ideas, and those who are 
maybe operating more as recipients um, of information with devices. Uh, I'm wondering if you can share a little more about uh, that issue just to kind of help us understand it and also uh, potentially some, some thoughts about how we might address this, this new participation divide. Right. So um, many people have been talking now about this idea that it's not so much a digital divide as, as a participation gap because, and not just in schools, but in society, um, what people have, the tools, the know-how, the skills, the abilities to actually create and um, manipulate the, the information and the tools and who are now becoming the, just the recipients and consumers of the information. And in a way, what we're seeing is that it's reinforcing a lot of the, the gaps and injustices in terms of um, race, class, gender, and all, a lot of the areas that have for ages been kind of the dividing areas that have kind of subjugated some and empowered others. And with the technology, that tends to be repeating. The kids in the highest, the, the, the most expensive private schools get far more access to, to the tools and to the training about how to use these and how to mod the systems and change them. Where a lot of kids in inner city schools and poor areas are being put in front of the screens and the screens are kind of telling them what to do and keeping them kind of in that passive consumer role. Mm. But I think this is a place where there's a potential for teachers, the whole role of the teacher to really change as if teachers can embrace the, the tools in a more open way where they're learning with their own students because the students come in with a lot of skills that our kids don't have in terms of how to use these phones and, and, and yeah. iPads. Um, and so teachers can be learning from them. At the same time, teachers can be guiding them. Okay, so I don't know so much about the skills, but I know how to teach and I know how to think. And what are some of the questions we need to be asking and wondering about? And what are some of the opportunities we can do with these new tools to really uh, transform our own society? So there's a lot of ethical considerations when it comes to um, having so much new technology in schools. There's uh, concerns, social emotional concerns uh, regarding cyberbullying and how kids interact uh, via technology. There's some um, considerations as a classroom teacher and um, for, you know, if you're a math teacher and you give out a test and one kid in the room takes a, picture, takes a picture of it and sends it out to their friends, like your next class when they walk in, they all already know the answers. Um, so when it comes to using technology responsibly, how do we teach students to do that? I know last um, school year, I actually had the privilege of teaching um, intro to computers. And um, one of the many lessons that I did teach was digital citizenship. And online, they actually have this entire program about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate from A to Z. And that was definitely something that we incorporated weekly into our lessons. Yeah, the notion of digital citizenship is huge, and it's, it's a new class that needs to be taught to everybody. Um, and it's something that even as adults, we're starting to try to figure out how do you know what's real and what isn't. The whole you know, obsession right now with fake news, um, the trolling, the, the way tweets and other uh, social media can be so devastating when it's not used responsibly. These are skills and things students need to be looking at and questioning and learning about. But you know, a lot of times they don't realize that some of the things that they're doing are inappropriate until someone comes and tells them, hey, that is inappropriate. <laughs>
right, to, to build on that, I think it's really important to make sure we sort of lift up models of, of good behavior and good usage and, mm -hmm. and point out models of like, potentially harmful and destructive usage. Um, because only by having a collective conversation around those like contrasting examples can we sort of build shared norms around you know how, how to use these devices responsibly. A lot of kids don't realize whatever they put out online is there forever. Right. And that idea of that digital footprint needs to be taught. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And just uh, to, add on, to add on a bit to that, um, what I've noticed, is I've been a classroom teacher for 14 years, and what I've noticed was early on um, when I would try to give students lessons on responsible use of the devices, a lot of it was like the just like mechanical aspect of it. Like, oh, you know, you know, you send that picture to somebody, it's on their phone, and if their phone, you know, someone gets that phone, whatever, you know, it's there, it's or records there. And then Snapchat came around and now stuff disappears, but it never really quite disappears and a lot of them don't quite understand the mm -hmm. what what a digital footprint even is. Um, so the focus on uh, I think I heard uh, mention of norms and, and citizenship and just the overall right and wrong, regardless of what the technology is allowing you to do. Just the question of, is it right that you do that? And, you know, just helping students explore that and become aware of that, I think is, is really critically important. So I would like personally to see more of that embedded into teacher training and how to do that with a you know, set of students that think they know the technology better than you do as a teacher, so. Right, and they also need to learn how to protect their own privacy, and because surveillance has become a big part of this new world of technology. And um, everything they do, everything they type on Google is just a search, mm -hmm. or Facebook, Amazon, all of that's recorded, people are collecting it, and then they're selling it, and it's, we don't know where it's going. Yeah, I wanna uh, dig a little bit deeper into this issue. I think uh, we've surfaced some of the uh, sort of uh, good behavior versus bad behavior um, aspects of the question. But I also think about, um, you know, we live in this amazing era where any student or just about any student in America can access information about just about anything that's ever happened in human history and the stuff that we've written about so far that might happen in the future. They can access all of it at once, right? And that is, uh, that's just an incredible place to to be, um, and yet uh, that places such incredible importance upon students being able to discern between uh, reasonable information and unreasonable information, or sound arguments and weak arguments, um, or you know sources that are trustworthy and sources that are not trustworthy. And uh, certainly, we have um, grown adults and elected officials who struggle with that distinction themselves uh, in this day and age, let alone sixth graders in South Los Angeles. So I'd love to hear from each of you about uh, kind of that aspect of, you know, the, um, the downside of having access to all the information is that we have access to all the information and some of it's pretty bad. Uh, how do we help kids and how do we help teachers help students navigate this, this terrain? I think this is one, one case where the technology, like the phenomenon with the technology isn't necessarily new it's just sort of resurfacing in a new way an old problem, right? You can think back to like the origins of yellow journalism in the late 1800s of like the problem of having like purportedly reputable sources for information that actually shouldn't be trusted. And, and it's, a, it's a legitimately hard problem um, for people who you know, spend their lives focused on like finding truth to sort of sift through the weeds. And, and I think, uh, I think part of the thing that we can do to help 
students and teachers is to reinforce the idea that it's not sort of a, an individual struggle, it's a collective struggle, and that everyone has to sort of help each other parse through everything, because if any one person tries to go at it alone, they're setting themselves up for failure. And I think it's important to, to reinforce mm -hmm. the idea that like you, you get to the heart of the matter or the truth by you know, talking through issues with your peers, your parents, your, your friends, your, your teachers, uh, and other people in the community. And that's how you sort of build this common understanding. And I think we need a whole new look at teaching skepticism and critical thinking because it's time, like this has been going on forever with information, um, but it's time that people are really taught more about how information is always biased, that there's no possible way as humans we can tell and present information objectively because through our own subjectivities, biases happen. And so bias in itself isn't bad, but bias can be very bad. So we need to empower students to be able to question and ask what is the bias in this? What's missing? What's being told? How is it being told? And so a lot more deeper questions, and that's really what we try to do with critical media literacy. Because even things like algorithms and numbers have bias. Mm. Absolutely. Kind of going off of what Jeff just said, um, a lot of things that we do is teach children to be able to um, identify who the authors of this information is. <laughs> and so I remember them doing research on Martin Luther King Jr. before, and they stumbled upon a web page that actually um, the author was a white supremacist. So it looked authentic and it looked correct to the naked eye, well, to a sixth grader's eye. Right. And um, a lot of the information of it was incorrect. And so uh, we had to kind of dig deeper and um, show them, well, how do you find um, who actually sponsored this website? And um, we, we had to go from there. And that alone was difficult for me as a teacher. And I had to relay that information to my students. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine the, the challenges of a young child today in trying to figure out what's true and what's not yes. true. Uh, you know, we, we had to look at the World Book Encyclopedia. Uh, and that was about as complex as it got. So. Um, I, uh, I think our, our final question today uh, maybe is building upon some of the stuff we were just talking about, but it's really looking at um, kind of the issues of social justice that undergird the discussion we're having today. And curious to hear from you all what, what your thoughts are about what justice looks like in a world where technology is now such a, a large and growing part of teaching and learning and the experience of going to school in an era where education is more important than perhaps ever before. So I think one of the exciting pieces that I find with new technology is the idea of voice, of whose voices can be heard, where the new tools by themselves are not gonna do that. There's still gonna be the same dominant corporate influence to control them but there's a new possibility where kids can be taking these tools and teachers can be guiding them to really be able to share their own voices and find other voices that are not typically heard or are being silenced in many ways. So I think voice is a, is a wonderful area. Well, personally, I've seen it in positive ways, but um, far too many times I've seen it in such a negative way where you know we're talking about justice as adults but then we're also talking about student justice to their peers 
and um, it's just it. I find it very dangerous for for them when they're posting, when they're looking up information, when they're sharing information. It's just really dangerous. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that I that I focus on is, you know, there there are lots of sort of visible and invisible systems that sort of govern, you know, how we interact with one another and how we even, you know, approach the questions of, you know, like, what should we be learning in school? Uh, you know, what's the best way to teach those things in school? Uh, and so I think as uh, technology uh, continues to, to be spread more uh, throughout the education system, I think it's important to, uh, it's, it's important to, to make sure that uh, to the point of voice that everyone has an equal voice in shaping that system that like sort of sets the rules by which everyone else is playing. Yeah. As technology continues to rapidly advance, I think this is a discussion that's going to continue to evolve over time um, for sure. We definitely thank you each for um, being part of our panel and sharing a little bit about your work and your perspective uh, relative to technology in the classroom. And um, for those of us, um, for those of you watching, we do have some one-on-one -on -one, uh, interviews with some of our panelists to learn more about their work and dig a little deeper into how their work impacts our classrooms today. So head over to our website for that, aotashow.com. And uh, once again, I just want to thank everybody for being part. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Wow, what a great seminar discussion today. Uh, so many interesting issues about technology and classrooms and the changing landscape of education that we got to to unpack with our experts, uh, just a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was hoping we'd be able to ask them about the pending robotic apocalypse as technology <laughs> takes over the world. We didn't get to that yet. Next Hopefully. next episode, next yeah. week. tune in next there week, we folks. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, next up we turn to a segment we call the assessment. Manuel, what do you got for us? All right, so check it. I'm at the Hollywood Bowl, right, for a Chance the Rapper concert. The Hollywood Bowl is a legendary outdoor concert venue that seats over 17,000 people, and this was a sold-out show. I'm in my seat waiting for the show to start, and this grown man comes passing by looking for his seat, which happened to be the seat right next to me. Tell me why this grown man was a former student of mine. Here we were, 11 years and 600 miles removed from where we last interacted, and he was seated right next to me in the sold-out 17,000-seat arena. What are the odds? Us classroom teachers love running into former students and seeing them all big and confident and flourishing. For me, moments like this, seeing my students all super grown and awesome, serve as a constant reminder that beneath the standards, tests, and grading, these are humans we're dealing with. Actual, factual little people, not just names in a grade book. They're not frozen in time in that school year. They go on to grow and become adults. And while they're our students, these actual factual little people need us in more ways than one. Classroom teachers are also de facto counselors and mentors with a dash of social worker and life coach mixed in. Or in other words, we help them connect the complicated dots of this disconnected world. In doing so, we help contribute to the type of adult that they become. This is one of the reasons why forging healthy connections with each and every student is so important. It's a sacred duty, and there are telltale signs when that connection is totally missing. 
There was that teacher in Alabama last month who told a student playing Tupac's Dear Mama to, quote, turn the nigger tunes off. Then there's that teacher in Pico Rivera who lambasted one of his students for expressing a desire to enlist in the military, calling our soldiers the, quote, lowest of the low. There was also that teacher in Austin who told a student of hers to, quote, go back to Mexico for speaking Spanish in class. Clearly, these individuals are not like the rest of us teachers. These folks do not have a connection with their students. If they did, none of these terrible things would have been said because teachers who see the humanity in their students and see that they are actual factual people would never do such harm and say these hateful things. We're here to help our students connect dots and grow into awesome human beings. And we must remember that. It's not just test scores and grade books. Last year, I learned of a rapper by the name of Lil Peep. I wasn't familiar with his music, but as soon as I heard his name, saw his picture, and played a song of his, I knew this dude just wasn't my cup of tea. But last December, he died. And one of my students was truly, truly devastated. Lil Peep wasn't anyone to me, but you know what? He was someone to my student. And I was careful to not be dismissive of this artist or tell any of my students to turn his music off. That's because I'm here to help these actual factual little people become awesome adults. I'm not here to judge or to impart my worldviews onto them, but that's what those three teachers did. Nigger tunes, lowest of the low, go back to Mexico. Those teachers judged and in the worst of ways. Let's be better than them. Let's be that positive connection. Let's remember that these little actual factual people grow up to be real world humans. Who they become is influenced by our work in helping them connect in this disconnected world. So be that connection. Take some time to listen and observe. It's pretty easy to do, actually. And if you're lucky, you might one day be seated next to that human, all grown up and confident, and you'll be able to have a great time over great memories. That student of mine, by the way, happens to now be an elementary teacher. So shout out Mr. Goodman, who now has his own actual factual little people who he is connecting with and that's my assessment for today wow manuel uh just beautifully said i think um you know oftentimes the the human aspect of the value of our profession is perhaps overlooked as we're focusing mm -hmm. on uh, achievement and and outcomes for kids which you know of course are important but uh, anyone who's been a teacher or even maybe a mentor or worked in a summer camp context really can, can relate to that, I think, and, and understands that relationships are the core currency of the work that we do and everything else in school is built upon that. Right. And we are just about at the end of our show today. Uh, and what a show it's been. We have talked about technology in the classroom. We've talked about um, relationships in schools, so many things, and of course, all of the above. Uh, folks, please make sure you check out our website. That's aotashow.com. You can always find more information about the show, full episodes, extras, segments, anything you need is there. Um, also make sure if you're watching on Facebook that you uh, follow us and like us. Same thing on YouTube. And of course, subscribe to our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. To close out the show, we head to a segment that we call The Dismissal. Manuel, what do you got for us? All right, so I want to shout out Bronx teacher Melissa Salguero of PS48, 
who received the 2018 Grammy Music Educator Award. This band teacher has helped revive a robust music program in this under-resourced community. Her fifth grade student, Luis, said about her, it's quote, not every day you get to meet a person that is so important in your life and that will teach you a bunch of things about life and stuff, unquote. <laughs> That's right, Luis. Miss Salguero has that connection with her students, and it sounds like that Grammy Award was well-deserved. So shout out. All right, great story. Today, my shout out goes to the amazing educators at Florence Griffith Joyner Elementary School in Watts. The school, which is an arts integration school, is just really a place where teachers are doing some amazing work in one of the highest need communities in Los Angeles, building an environment where students are loved and cared for. I was there recently and saw this image. Now, it stood out to me as a powerful contrast to the images we have in our history of water fountains as symbols of bigotry and segregation like this one. What a powerful flipping of that history on its head. I want to give a special shout out to Principal Melanie Edmond and her entire team of wonderful educators helping to make Florence Griffith Joyner Elementary School a fantastic place for kids in Watts. Absolutely. Very awesome. Very awesome. Thank you all for tuning in and remember to go to our website, aotashow.com. Okay, podcast listeners, we're going to roll you into the first of our three one-on-one -on -one interviews. These are bonus pieces, and of course, the video versions are on the website. We'll start with our interview with Santosh Balasubramanian, a technologist formerly of the Khan Academy and Google who specializes in applications for education and healthcare. Enjoy. All right. Thank you for tuning in to this episode four extra. I'm here with one of our panelists from our seminar discussion about technology in the classroom. I'm here with Santosh Balasubramanian, and he is a self-described technologist. So we're going to start there because as a history teacher, I hadn't heard that term before. So uh, Santosh, thank you for joining us. And can you describe for us a little bit about what a technologist is or does? Yeah, first, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, basically just means that I work on designing and building tools to help people accomplish different tasks in, the, in their daily life. So uh, that could mean that I, that I focus on sort of designing how a tool should work. So I'm like literally drawing screens in an app or something like mm -hmm. that. Or it could mean that I'm functioning as an engineer and I'm writing code. Or it could mean that I'm sort of coordinating a team of designers and engineers to accomplish some task. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like thinking about you know, what is the tool that people need, how should it work, and uh, how do we get it in their, in their hands. And so at, at Khan Academy, for example, I worked on uh, designing and, and building the, the mobile apps and the, the website uh, to help students uh, find topics that they, they need to study or brush up on uh, and help teachers uh, find materials for their classroom. Oh wow, so have you always had an interest in technology as a learning tool or educational tool? Yeah, I, I, think, I think I have, uh, from a, a really young age, been interested in, uh, one, just a technology and its use in, in all sorts of different, different spheres, but in, in education in particular. Uh, I think part of what appeals to me about uh, 
being able to work on technology is that you can sort of take a, a general set of tools and bring them to different areas, whether it's education or healthcare or, or other other areas that could potentially benefit from from technology. Cool. So then you mentioned your work at Khan Academy. Uh, can you tell? So we heard a little bit during the seminar about the work that you do. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us just a little bit more for folks that might have missed out on the seminar? Um, about your work in education and the research that you're currently doing? Yeah, so so basically the the, the general problem that I think I described er, er, earlier in the discussion was uh, what Benjamin Bloom sort of called the two sigma problem, where mm -hmm. uh, if you have one-on-one -on -one tutorial instruction, you're able to get two sigma or two standard deviation points, uh, better better results with, with students. Um, but obviously, one-on-one -on -one instruction isn't really pragmatic. Um, and so uh, my, the focus of my work at Khan Academy was uh, providing a tool to students and teachers uh, so that they could like potentially reduce that gap, get like maybe 10 or 15% closer to that. Uh, and so pragmatically, what that means is that you know, uh, we designed and built improvements to the the Android and iOS app so that students could go in the app and answer questions and practice skills related to you know counting if they're in kindergarten or calculus if they're in high school uh, and covering you know, math, science, history, uh, a variety of subjects. Um, and so there, the core challenge was figuring out sort of like what types of content students and teachers need, uh, what sorts of questions they'd be interested in, and how to make it so, so that it's easy to do that sort of on a phone when a student is like riding the bus, in the hallway between classes, or wherever else they might have just a few spare minutes to sort of practice their skills in whatever subject they're learning. Cool. And is your current research uh, related to that? Or I think you mentioned um you were doing some research in the health field? Yeah, yeah. So, so currently I, I'm working at uh, Stanford School of Medicine on uh, developing uh, algorithms and technology to, to help physicians make decisions about mm. how to treat a patient in the clinic. Um, and you know, at, at first glance, that sounds like a very different problem from, right, from right. education, but there are actually lots of really similar, lots of parallels, you know, because there's a similar discussion happening within healthcare about, you know, what is the, the role of technology in the clinic? Um, and so the simple thing is like, how do we use technology to uh, facilitate, you know, like capturing data and sharing data between physicians so that they can collaborate when taking care of a patient? Or how do we make it such that, you know, as a, as a patient, you have more information about your care and can make more informed decisions? Uh, and so the, the research that I'm doing at, at Stanford in particular is on finding ways to, to give recommendations to physicians about you know pursuing this diagnosis or pursuing this treatment option, um, those sorts of things. Cool. So as an educator, as a classroom teacher, um, I know that there's really a spectrum of teacher beliefs relative to technology. There's those teachers who are very gung-ho and very, uh, very much supporters of technology in the classroom and mm -hmm. want that one-to-one -one teacher to, uh, well, student to uh, laptop or student to tablet um, ratio. There are teachers sort of in the middle that think technology could be useful, but it's not sort of the end all be all and maybe districts shouldn't spend as much money as they're spending. And there are teachers who, you know, you ask them to, all right, log into Google, go to, you know, your Google Drive and it's just like, what are you talking about? I don't remember my password. Mm -hmm. I hate this. We don't need none of this. You know, I didn't, I didn't grow up. On, I needed to learn this way. Um, so what would you say to teachers who are really skeptical of discussions around technology in the classroom or skeptical of the general 
um, direction of classrooms utilizing technology more and more. Well, so I, I think in general, not just in education, but in all of the other fields where you might think about, about using technology, it's important, sort of the number one principle is just meet people where they are. Mm. Um, and so I think one of the, the challenges is that often education feels like a set of tools and practices being sort of imposed on, on someone, as opposed to just asking someone, like, what are you trying to do? What's hard about it? How could we make that a little bit easier? Um, so for, for example, if I'm, uh, I've recently been working uh, with a high school, helping them with their one-to-one uh, -one Chromebook rollout. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things that I've been focusing on is just asking people, you know, like, what are they, what are they teaching? And like, what's hard and e or easy about that process? And you know, what, are, what are some things that you're worried about that we could potentially make better? And in some cases, the solution might involve technology. In some cases, it won't involve technology. Um, and so the, the focus that I have when I go to any of those conversations is just like, what's the actual thing you're trying to solve? And how can I help you solve that problem? All right, great. And um, there are other teachers who it's not so much the use of technology that they have a problem with, but it's sort of the corporate influence. So mm -hmm. you know, there's districts where every student might have an iPad and there's districts like the one I work in that's, you know, every student has a Chromebook and everything's Google driven. And there are educators who look at just the influence of Google or other tech companies and are worried that public schooling um, might be uh, a little bit too much subject to corporate uh, influence. So what do you say to teachers or educators who are skeptical of the role of these big tech companies getting so involved in classroom? Uh, well, so I guess I'd want to separate two different things. One is like when you think about sort of corporate influence, there's a, a justified concern about just the cost of everything. Mm. And, and there I think uh, educators, parents and students can do a lot to push uh, companies that are building these you know, apps and these devices uh, to provide those services for free uh, or to, to provide them subsidized to schools um, because you know, at the end of the day, what they should be caring about is you know, the student outcomes. Um, so that's, that's one point. I guess the other point is that uh, I think it's important to uh, recognize that in 99.9% in .9 of the cases where there's you know, a new startup or a, a big you know, multi-billion dollar corporation that's working on education, most of them are in it because they genuinely care about students too. Um, and so I, I think it's a matter of just like finding a way to have the right conversation where you recognize that everyone's interests are actually aligned um, to, to help the lives of students and teachers. Um, and from there, figure out sort of like what are good solutions to these, these problems. Okay, so um, in the one-to-one -one rollout that um, my school is currently undergoing, I did hear a comment from a student who didn't want to get a Chromebook and his parents said, they didn't want him on a Chromebook because they don't want him having information uh, available to Google. And in this current uh, political climate, there are serious concerns about um, immigration policy and a, a whole host of issues. So there are families that are really skeptical of their child's information mm -hmm. being accessible um, through technology to you know wh whoever. Um, having worked in um, technology for for a while. What are, what's your, I guess, answer to parents who don't want their kids' data to be accessible to these companies in their schools? Uh, I, I think parents and students have a 
like justifiable concerns there. And I think it's up to, to parents, students, teachers, and, and school administrators to find out you know, what are the right solutions that work for, for that community. And in, in some cases, the community will be more okay with you know, having anonymized data sent off to, to some company. In some cases, they won't be. Um, and you know, for, if, if you have a need, you can imagine there's basically a tool out there that will do what you're interested in. Um, and lots of people in the technology industry have similar concerns about uh, you know, overreach in terms of collecting data or, or other things. And so I think it's important to just have, again, sort of a shared conversation. One concrete thing is that you know, lots of companies have signed on to the, the student, privacy pre student privacy pledge, uh, and that basically uh, says like you're not going to sell uh, student data to other companies and that sort of thing. So, so teachers, students, parents can, can be proactive about making sure that you know, the technology they're using in their classroom uh, abides by certain principles that they believe in. I, that's, I had never heard of that pledge. Actually, I didn't know that was, that was a thing. Um, so then, I guess, follow a question to that. Would it be, uh, I guess, reasonable for any parent watching this to contact their school and, and see if they're part of a pledge or have any knowledge about that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, it makes sense for, for parents to talk to, to teachers and administrators about mm -hmm. that. You know, like in, in some ways, like I, like I mentioned in the panel discussion, the, the technology conversation mm -hmm. doesn't so much bring up new questions, it just resurfaces old questions in a new format. And so like t taking this example there, like this conversation about like what apps should my student be allowed to use mm -hmm. in the classroom is very similar in some ways to the conversation about like what books should my student be reading in, in a literature classroom. Um, oh. and, and, that, and that's like a, like a genuinely difficult conversation that has to happen between students, parents, and administrators, right? right. Um, uh, and, and, and teachers. And similarly with technology, I think it's up to sort of the school community to figure out what makes sense for those students in that population. Great. Um, so then I guess my final question. So I'm a child of the Terminator generation, Terminator films, and Terminator 2 was one of my favorite films ever. I cried at the end, true story, <laughs> uh, when the Terminator had to die, um, if he was ever really alive. Um, <laughs> but this concern about the pending robot uh, apocalypse, what is the future of technology and education or your work with technology look like? When you look down the line, what are we, what are we looking at? Uh, so I, I think the, the the bright future for technology and education is giving students and teachers just more agency uh, mm -hmm. to sort of uh, and and more flexibility to determine what's happening in the classroom. Um, so that could mean just giving teachers more time to to like work directly with individual students or small groups. Mm -hmm. uh, it could mean giving students more time to sort of drive their own interests and their skills. Um, and, and all of these, again, are, are focused on just in, increasing the, the amount of agency that any given person has to decide you know, what's important for them to learn and how do they learn it. Great. Well, thank you very much for uh, sticking around for this one-on-one, -on -one, and thank you again for being part of our seminar discussion. And if you missed the seminar discussion, uh, definitely head over to our website to see that. That's aotashow.com, and you could um, learn more from Santosh about his work and about how technology is impacting learning in America schools today. So thank you for joining us, and thank you again for being here. Thank you. 
All right, time for our second bonus interview. This time we have Dr. Jeff Scher of UCLA, who serves as a faculty advisor for their teacher education program and whose research centers on critical media literacy. Enjoy. And welcome to all of our viewers. Thank you for joining us for today's episode extras. I'm joined uh, by Jeff Scher. And uh, as always, you can find more content for our show on our website. That's at aotashow.com. Jeff, thank you so much for uh, sticking around and talking a bit more with us. My pleasure. Uh, we had, I thought, a really interesting conversation earlier uh, with the panel, uh, just digging into so many complex issues around technology in the classroom and kind of the, the new world of teaching and learning that, that we live in today. And um, you as a uh, faculty advisor at uh, UCLA in the teacher education program, um, specialize in critical media literacy. And that might be a term that some of our viewers maybe are not uh, exactly familiar with. Uh, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about your work and kind of what you do and, and why this is so interesting and important. Great, well thank you. Uh, so what we try to do really with critical media literacy is help teachers help their students think more critically about all the information that they're encountering, they're using, they're hearing, they're creating, uh, to give them more tools so that they can think about it, understand it, make sense of it, and then also create their own messages in a way where they're being more responsible, where they're um, also sharing their own perspectives and their own voices. Yeah, and I know you uh, you also have a particular focus kind of uh, supporting new teachers who are coming into the classroom and kind of learning to use uh, tools of technology, but also learning to kind of support students to use them right. responsibly. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about like what that work looks like and how you engage with, sure. with new teachers. So we have a course at UCLA uh, on critical media literacy where we help our, uh, our new teachers um, kind of struggle and wrestle with the ideas of what's different today in the 21st century in terms of the information and the messages that are everybody that are receiving and also so many people are creating. Um, and we do this basically through using a framework, comes out of the theoretical school of cultural studies. And the ideas are to look critically at information, to understand that all information has a bias, that simply having a bias is not the problem. The problem is understanding the bias. Um, because a lot of times we fall into the myth of thinking something's objective and mm. when we do that we lose the ability to recognize what is the bias behind the information. And we look at advertising, we look at movies, music, uh, social media, so many of the different ways where our messages are being told. Because humans historically have always been storytellers for thousands of years, that's how we've passed on our traditions. And now it's more important than ever because our dominant storytellers today are typically very large corporations with tremendous power to push out the same messages yeah. that they want for commercial purposes as opposed to the old storytellers which were the, you know, the seniors in the, in the community, in the village, who always had the priority of making sure that their community, their culture continues. Yeah, and who are not trying to get us to consume a particular version of some product, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I think about the amount of time that most young people, and grown folks for that matter, but especially young people who are impressionable and still, you know, still developing brains, um, 
the amount of time that they are exposed to these images, to different forms of media, to different forms of corporate advertising, um, and the, the amount of kind of decisions that if they're thinking critically, they would be needing to make or consider um, on a daily or hourly basis is pretty, pretty extensive. So, right. uh, it, you know, this sounds like um, not only interesting, but also like basic life training. That <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And especially as these new um, messages are so highly constructed. I mean, there's so much money that goes into just a 30 second commercial uh, that most students aren't really prepared to really to think critically and to be able to unpack these things. So we, we need to help them with new skills that we really didn't need so much, you know, a couple decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. So to maybe go a little further uh, down this uh, kind of line of thinking, we live in this era today of, you know, fake news and alternative facts and uh, Russian bots. Uh, and you know what what at least used to be thought of at least as reliable sources of information that marketplace is just flooded with sources and the uh, the pressure to discern between good and bad information uh, is on kids right is on us as individuals and in our own device and so um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about like how we should be, how we as educators should be um, equipping students to learn to live and, and function in this kind of world. Right. No, it's, it's a big challenge and still, I mean, it's a kindergarten standard to be able to separate fiction from nonfiction, <laughs> but it really isn't, yeah. it's not so easy, even for adults. I mean, we see that, you know, the fake news that's been going around uh, the social media. Um, and so what we need to do is really help our students develop that critical consciousness, that skepticism to be able to start questioning and, and asking about the information. How was it constructed? Who constructed it? What's missing from this message? Um, who's benefiting? Who's losing out by this message? And one of the key ideas we push is to help teach kids about triangulation, about finding different sources of information to be able to see what's most likely to have happened. Because just one source now, you don't know. It's too difficult to know the validity of any single source. So we need multiple sources. I mean, that's something I wish our president would look at when he thinks about climate change. Yeah. Because if you triangulate the science and the data about climate change, it's not a question. It's very obvious that the climate is changing because because of human CO2 emissions. But that takes looking at information through a critical lens. Yeah. Yeah, th there's two things you said there that are kind of uh, blowing my mind right now. One is the fact that uh, separating truth from fiction is a kindergarten standard. Uh, I'm wondering how many university graduates in this country are still struggling to demonstrate mastery over that kindergarten standard. Uh, so we'll just let that speak for itself. Um, and then I think what you just described almost sounds to me like, um, you know, like the work of journalists, right? Uh, sort of sourcing your story and uh, vetting sources. Um, and it's making me imagine us needing to, or having sort of the burden of, of needing to operate almost as our own independent journalists in this, in this day and age to really seek truth. Absolutely. Um, and journalists have in the past been a very important source, um, and they still are, 
but even information from the best news source, you know, most journalism in America is corporate and it has economic interests. And so it's not a simple, you know, liberal conservative um, issue of bias. It's much more about a, a corporate bias that, mm -hmm. that goes into everything we see. But this bias is everywhere. It's even in, like I mentioned earlier, in the algorithms that search engines are based on. Yeah, yeah. So you're someone who obviously has done a lot of uh, research and, and writing and thinking about this issue. Uh, and I'm sure there's lots of people who rarely think about this issue and just kind of go, go about daily life. Um, what are we not asking about these uh, issues of critical media literacy that you think we should be asking or, or thinking about? So we use a set of questions um, when we're working with our teachers to be able to help them pose these questions to the students. It's not about telling people what to think, but really it's about asking deeper questions. Some of these questions are who created the message? Why did they create the message? Um, what different techniques did they use to create the message? How are these different techniques positioning us as we're reading or looking at the message to feel or think differently about the information? And one of the big questions is trying to ask, who do you think is benefiting from the information? Who do you think is being hurt by the information? Mm. Yeah, uh, those questions actually um, stand out to me because they seem very similar to the kinds of questions that many English teachers, at least uh, secondary English teachers, ask their students to think about when reading, you know, uh, Shakespeare or, um, you know, or Toni Morrison or some fiction, right? Um, and I'm hearing you make sort of slight pivots on them and, and saying we need to be asking these questions about all information we're, we're consuming and exposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, you specialize in uh, kind of unpacking and um, examining issues of racial, uh, of race and gender uh, mm -hmm. in the media. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that aspect of the work in particular, some of the things that maybe you're working on with teachers to bring that lens to the work in the classroom. So one of the things we try to help teachers help students is to question who's benefiting and who's being hurt. And they're big ideological structures that are very hard to see, like patriarchy, like white supremacy, like sexism, homophobia, that students really need help to unpack and to start to recognize because they're so common in our society that we often don't question them. And so we try to do is focus on different topics in different ways where students are creating media and asking them and challenging themselves about what does this mean? What, where is the equity? What are the biases that are implied? One example, there's a wonderful website um, that uses uh, examples of toy commercials for Legos, where it has commercials that are marketed towards girls and commercials that are marketed towards boys. And it gives you the opportunity to put an image, the video from one commercial over the soundtrack from the other commercial. Mm. And it's a wonderful way where students can see, students at a very young age, just how the social construction of gender is being communicated within a toy commercial. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, um I am not a parent uh, at this point in my life, but um, every holiday season when I uh, when I do a fair amount of shopping for 
kids in my family and, and friends' kids. Uh, I think there's probably no space in our society that is instantaneously more visually starkly gendered than yeah. the toy section at any Target or Walmart across the country, right? Like Absolutely. You walk in the pink, pink and blue and, and you're bombarded, yeah. uh, right? And you walk down the like race car toy gun aisle and you're bombarded in a different way. Right. Um, and part of that construction also is very problematic in terms of the way violence is gendered for boys. Mm. And that's something we really need to look at is that it's not just simply the um, different things that some like this some like this but it's a very um, problematic uh, construction of boys to be male means to be violent mm. yeah yeah so um, maybe with with that thought in mind um, as a closing question I'd love to kind of get your thoughts about you know if you were uh, king of the education mm -hmm. world uh, <laughs> for, for a day, uh, what are the things that maybe we're not doing a good enough job with, um, uh, you know, in terms of preparing our teachers or helping our teachers help our students? What, what should we be doing a, a better job at in order to help address some of the issues that you, you've um, very eloquently surfaced today? Well, I think we definitely need to help prepare teachers better to ask critical questions, to help their students ask critical questions. One of the best ways, I think, for doing this, for students to really kind of come to these realizations, is by empowering kids to create media. When kids are taking pictures, when they're getting down low and taking, photographing from a low camera angle versus mm -hmm. shooting from a high camera angle, they start to really understand the way power can be represented simply in a photograph by just a different choice in the level from where you take the picture. There's so many parts of this that sound really complex, but once you start doing it, once you start creating, um, they make more sense and it's easier for kids to see. And so I think a lot more if we can have kids producing, creating media in ways where they're asking these questions and looking at issues of race, class, gender, I think that's a wonderful start. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jeff. I uh, really appreciate your time and, and your insights in today's conversation. Uh, I've been joined by Jeff Scher, uh, faculty advisor at the Teacher Education Program at the UCLA uh, Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. And uh, for more information about our show and episode extras, please visit us on our website. That's aotashow.com. You can also check us out on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash AOTA show. And uh, for those of you who are um, more interested in the audio version of what we have, please uh, check out our podcast and subscribe. We're available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Uh, Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. And now time for our third and final bonus interview, this time with middle school teacher Evelyn Ennis. Evelyn is a blended learning all-star. Now, we did have some minor microphone issues with this one, but nothing crazy enough to stop Evelyn from dropping some gems on us. So let's do it. All right, welcome to all of our viewers. Um, I am here today with Evelyn Ennis uh, for one of our episode extras. Uh, thanks for checking out this clip with us. Um, you can always find uh, episode extras and more at our website. That's aotashow.com. Evelyn, thank you so much for sticking around for a little bit of conversation. Uh, we had, a, a, I think, a great talk on the panel earlier, and I'm glad we get a little bit of time to learn more about what you're doing. 
Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so let's kind of jump right in. You are a sixth grade math and science teacher at George Washington Carver Middle School in South Los Angeles and are doing some interesting things with iPads and blended learning software in your classroom. So tell us about that. What are you implementing and how does it work? So pre previous to this year, um, I actually was piloting Dreambox. It's a um, personal learning um, app where students get individ individualized instruction for math. It actually helped um, fill in the gaps for a lot of our students, being that most of our students are actually far below grade level. So it was phenomenal to use. This year, however, we actually transitioned to iReady, which is not just for math, but it's for English as well, which is great because it's finally everything in one platform. Um, we've been using that for our diagnostics. I've been using MobiMax. Um, a lot of my students have found it a lot helpful because they were able to do a lot of repetitive practice at their own pace. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, students working at their own pace is one of the more interesting aspects of what uh, technology offers us in the classroom, right? It's one of the hardest things to do as a human being uh, in the classroom is differentiate yeah. for 30 different kids who are working at 30 different paces. And, and uh, you know, certainly there's only so much that you with one, yes. one brain and <laughs> one body can do at a time with that, so. Yeah, and previous to this, I had to make, you know, numerous copies of different worksheets at different levels. Now I actually have a platform that I could assign certain lessons to or the lessons are automatically assigned based on student needs. Mm. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, like the, the impact that um, these tools have had on your practice and then also on kind of the, the student experience. Like what is it like to be a kid in Miss Ennis's class? So um, at the beginning of the year, they're really excited because we have one-to-one -one iPads in our classroom. And um, they're able, well, I introduce them to the program first. I, I tell them no one's program is gonna be exactly the same because you're all at different levels. Mm. And um, I'm able to kind of look at what standards we're working on in sixth grade. And it actually breaks down that standards based on the previous standards they needed to know in their previous grades. Mm. So what ends up happening is, um, most of my students do have significant gaps so it kind of teaches them the third grade prerequisite their fourth grade prerequisite and slowly brings them up until they're finally at their uh, sixth grade prerequisite but what's amazing about it is that it doesn't stop there if they have completely mastered like some of my gifted students have then it actually brings them to seventh grade and eighth grade standards which is phenomenal because a lot of the seventh and eighth grade teachers are saying that the kids are actually um, understanding the concept at a much higher rate than they have in previous years hmm. wow and so uh so the second part of that question about like what's it like to be a kid um, you know, I know that not every classroom at your school has one-to-one -one devices and not every teacher is perhaps as, um, um, as bought in or as mm -hmm. well experienced with uh, these tools as yourself. So uh, give us some insight, like what, what is it like for the students when they come into your class, um, you know, apart from the kind of coolness of having an iPad, yeah. uh, you know, what, what's the learning experience like? Well, they're actually able to come to me and say, hey, Miss Ennis, like, I need you to assign this standard for me. And so all I do is open up my laptop, I look for the standard that they need to work on, and I assign it to them. So it's them becoming more aware of, I need this 
Miss Ennis could assign it to me so I can get this mm. and um, kind of finally being able to have some kind of success after being so successful so unsuccessful for so many years mm. so um, this is now finally a safe environment where I'm not judging them on the fact that they don't know I'm actually just helping them to reach their goals and making sure that they're getting sixth grade content as well so it sounds to me like you're really describing sort of a, a greater degree of ownership over Absolutely. the learning process from the students. Yes. Um, which, you know, is something that's been written about and talked about in, you know, uh, in education and learning theory for forever, probably, yeah. right? Um, so that, that's really powerful. So, you know, hearing you talk, that all sounds great. And it sounds to me like, you know, well, shouldn't everyone be doing this? Um, you know, shouldn't we just get iPads and get these programs for, for all teachers and then and then everything will be good, right? Uh, what do you think about that? Like, it's is, a lot of work. Is, yeah, is, <laughs> it, I imagine it it's not as easy as you're making no, it sound. No, <laughs> it's a lot of work. I think um, the hardest part was me getting to know the program and me figuring out, well, this is what I can use, this is how to use the program before I can get my students there. Because if I didn't tell them that I could assign them certain lessons, they're not going to come to me and ask mm. for me to assign them certain lessons. But then it became, okay, I need to be able to get on my laptop and assign the lesson so that I can get back to the rest of the class because everything takes time. And um, I was, I was very uncomfortable at one point using these different programs and kind of, it, it does take a lot of time. I had to go home and I've spent numerous hours navigating it, um, calling them to ask them, well, do you guys have this? And kind of working with them to um, make different features of the apps even easier for teachers to use. So it does take a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. So uh, I think one of the things that is um, that kind of rides alongside the, the whole issue of the integration of technology in the classroom is the cost benefit analysis. And, and in this sense, I'm literally meaning the cost benefit analysis. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier schools are spending, uh, you know, upwards of $10 billion in total on, you know, devices and licenses and, uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, which is certainly a tremendous amount of money. And so, um, you know, devices get old, they are outdated every few mm -hmm. years in some cases. Uh, there's always a new version of the software that you have to buy a license yes. for, those sorts of things. So this is gonna be, a, at least for the foreseeable future, a perpetual cost. Mm -hmm. um, is it worth it? Why do you think we should continue or, or shouldn't? Personally, I do think it's worth it. When we talk about differentiated instruction and personalized learning, these platforms can take us there. Uh, yes, we do have to you know, update. Yes, we do have to um, buy more products and um, buy the platforms that they're on. But at the end of the day, if our goal is um, student success, student achievement, um, making our kids well-rounded individuals, then we have to invest in that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think another issue that people often have a lot of questions about, and certainly as, as a consumer and as an educator I grapple with a lot, is the issue of kind of privacy and ownership and data mining in education. And so, 
uh, you know, some of the biggest data mining companies out there, Google, for example, probably the biggest, um, you know, is also one of the biggest players in the education uh, um, technology sector. Google Classroom is huge. And so um, the idea that we're having students input information about themselves and that information is being extracted and used for marketing purposes or um, other other purposes, I think that can be unsettling to some folks. How do yeah. you grapple with that issue? What's your take on sort of where the where the lines in the sand are about what's right and what's not okay in that realm? Well, I grapple with it by just assuming everyone has good intentions. Mm. <laughs> and so when students are using it, I'm hoping that they're taking this information so that they can make something better, so that they can improve something that they had and um, kind of transform it into something that becomes even more useful to continue to push student achievement. I don't like to lose sleep over the fact that they might have bad intentions, but when you assume everyone has good intentions, then it becomes easier to to swallow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as someone in my in my work, uh, we have tremendous amounts of content on Google. Yes. Personally, I have <laughs> tremendous amounts yes. of content on Google, and uh, you know, I just I don't have a better idea. They have tremendous tools that are very useful, as yeah. do a number of other vendors, and so. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to avoid the issue, but it's uh, it's something to think about for yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I remember um, going online because I um, my students' voices are very low. And um, I did a little research online on how to get them to speak a little louder. Mm. And um, because of my search, these uh, educator microphones came up. And mm. then the ads for educator microphones came up and it actually stated that, hey, you know, like if you buy, you know, these microphones, then people will be heard in the class and um, actually student achievement raises. <laughs> Sorry. And so um, I, I just hope that they had good intentions when they advertised those materials to me. Yeah, yeah. It is uh, funny, I get those same kind of ads sometimes <laughs> that uh, pop up in yes. various platforms and you know someone <laughs> is watching. Yes. Um, so, you know, I think um, you as someone who's really like an early adopter and has a degree in technology and yeah. education, um, you know, uh, it's not a surprise that you have a one-to-one -one classroom. Um, and as a nation, we're kind of migrating in that direction right yes. now. And I think the assumption is that that's a good thing and that um, that is the right place to be given the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree? And uh, or do you think there's maybe scenarios where we shouldn't be pushing technology in the classroom? No, I agree, because if we're pushing one to one technology in the classroom as children, when they become adults, isn't that what they're going to have anyways? Mm. So they should be able to use this technology to kind of advance their knowledge and whatever areas that they need as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, last question. If you had, uh, you know, if you had bucket loads of money, if resources were no obstacle and uh, you were in charge <laughs> and you had the ability to do something to improve the use of technology in the classroom, um, what, what would you do? What do you think would be the, the right next step to take these uh, advancements and help them improve our teaching and learning at scale? 
Well, I would totally um, push toward things to be more project-based. Um, I think a lot of times when we do different things in the classroom, they're so separated from each other. Students have no idea that uh, this skill and this skill actually leads to this greater skill. Mm. So I would definitely want to um, teach our teachers and not just their teachers, myself as well, um, how to make everything more project-based. And um, also creating websites, um, having different instructional um, coaches come in to show us how to make these websites so that they can make online portfolios, so that um, you know their digital footprint online doesn't always have to be pictures or you mm. know uh, a different status on Facebook. <laughs> more than just Instagram? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. okay. Okay, great. Well, uh, again, uh, Evelyn Ennis, uh, sixth grade teacher at George Washington Carver Middle School. Thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, and to all of you out there watching, thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, as always, find full episodes and extra content on our website. That's aotashow.com. Also, check us out on Facebook. Please like and follow our page. Same thing on YouTube. And of course, for folks who prefer the podcast, if you're in your car commuting, you could check us out. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.